0: Welcome to the Minder Podcast.
1: Welcome to episode 11 of the Minder podcast in association with Minder.org. I'm your host, Paul Stenning. In this show, Minder on the Hornsey Express, we have part one of an interview with Andrew Payne, writer of 12 Minder episodes, including some real classics. Senior Citizen Kane, Back in Good Old England, Goodbye Sailor, You Need Hands, Get Daily, and Minder on the Orient Express. Andrew is also known for Pie in the Sky, Lovejoy, and Midsummer Murders, as well as several theatre plays. Andrew talks about his background before writing for Minder, when he was an art student in the 60s, and his experience meeting criminals who would form a useful learning curve for Minder scripts. He talks about the very first guidelines for Leon Griffith's timeless idea, and how this was expanded upon to form the first series of the show, as well as all the others. We hear about meetings with script executive Linda Agron, and how scripts, particularly Andrew's first, came together. There is also a mention of the wonderful Lee Montague, who appeared in two episodes of Minder, as well as The Sweeney. The role I remembered him in was Mr Sain in the fourth episode, A Tethered Goat, but as Andrew says, Lee was almost Arthur Daly. Andrew talks about the writing process and how scripts came together. This is an episode for Minder Purists. I hope you enjoy it.
2: It's all right, is the, uh, the mise-en-scene okay for you? You yeah, look wonderful.
1: Amazing, in, in fact,
2: because I was trying to work out,
1: if it's not such a rude question, how old you might be. because
2: How old I might be? Yeah, yeah because... I'm incredibly old. <laughs> it's just,
1: when you mentioned elderly parents, and I was thinking, you look pretty young from the photos, the videos I've seen... And then, but dating back to when you actually wrote really material, you were either very young men or you had something mildly not quite.
2: (laughs) Well, uh, I'm 72 um, and I have uh, an elderly mother in Norfolk who actually I'm going to see tomorrow, who's 100 and, should be 103 at the end of March. So, um, yeah, so... um, Uh, I was when I when I when I wrote the first minder. That'd be '79. I was I was kind of 29, I think, Mm -hmm. 29, 30. So you know, which I think these days you'd be regarded as kind of a late start. But um, I don't know. I don't know about that really. But you
1: know, I don't know because I got the impression. Obviously, I wasn't. Behaved I am now, then, but um, from any theory, you get the impression that the person writing it has had a lot of life experience, or at least a lot of those types of experience. Yeah. So.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, <laughs> it's weird, you know, it, it's by the time I uh, started, um, I mean, I've been writing stuff for. I mean, I went to art school uh, for, for four years and my, you know, my initial uh, kind of ambition was to be a painter, you know, and, uh, but I was always interested in, I always wrote stuff, <clears throat> wrote stuff at school, you know, terrible short stories, terrible poetry, <laughs> and I never lost interest in that, but my prime thing was, was to be, was art, you know, although I have to say I was pretty terrible. Uh, and it wasn't really until my mid-20s, mid to late 20s, that I started writing again in earnest, you know. But by then, so by the time I I got the Minder gig, I mean, I had had, you know, know, all kinds of um, uh, uh, jobs, met all kinds of people. I mean, four years at art school in London back in the day, It was a very different experience uh, to to the experience of being a student now, I think, you know, uh, in the sense that I came to London when I was 18. I knew nobody. You had to find your own accommodation. You know, you there was no kind of pastoral care. There was no. um, I don't know. How can I describe it? I mean, you just turned up. Uh, for your classes you know and everything else was just left to you so where you lived who you lived with so I mean I never I always had kind of a lot of friends um, and contacts across a kind of very kind of wide North London kind of you know demographic uh, and most of the people I live with and, and I mean I, I did make some very good friends obviously who were fellow students but A lot of people I hung out with and socialised with were, you know, a bunch of, I suppose, looking back and you'd call it a very typical kind of the flotsam and jetsam of the 60s, you know, who were scuffling around making a living uh, one way or another, in some ways, you know, less less legitimate than others, you know. So um, I didn't really, I didn't have a criminal background or much experience of that directly but I knew a lot of people that lived, you know, in a kind of twilight, you know, zone. I mean, in a kind of agreeable way. Do you know what I mean? Not in a kind of threatening or unpleasant way. I mean, it was all kind of very amusing. Then when, uh, as far as mind is concerned, when I, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's interesting, that thing about um, what, you, what kind of gets your imagination going. I mean, when um, I was given, when I went to meet Linda Agron, my agent sent me to meet Linda Agron, who was a, the script editor of Mind, uh, as you know. I mean, you know all this stuff, obviously, uh, because he thought we'd get on. Uh, <laughs> um, and indeed we did. Uh, and she gave me Leon Griffiths's. um Bible, I suppose, is what they call it now. What, you know, but I mean, it was very short. It was, I mean, my. I wish I'd kept it. I mean, I did keep it for ages, and it's it's gone now. It may be lurking somewhere, but it was eight nine pages at most. Um, uh, descriptions of uh, Arthur and Terry, their characters, uh, a description of the of their relationship, um, and i think maybe seven or eight very short paragraph story like suggestions for the kind of stories that these two are getting involved in and i read this thing and i thought i can you know i immediately understood it i immediately understood the characters immediately understood the relationship i thought i could write for these guys you know i understand this relationship i mean it's a relationship which you can transpose it happens they happen to occupy kind of you know that world that kind of dodgy world but I mean you could transpose that relationship the dynamics of it into almost any arena do you know what I mean uh uh and so I understood that relationship completely and and there's something about the London kind of the way Londoners talk to each another that I just found you know it, I say easy I mean I just could hear them it kind of sparked my imagination, you know, put it like that. And I thought, yes, I can write for these guys. I can write this, you know. But then quite soon after I started, I met uh, Tony Horn, and became very friendly with Tony, sadly no longer with us, uh, who came from a very different background, as I'm sure you know, um, to me. And um, We became very good friends and I spent... You know probably uh, I mean really, until he died um I'd see him regularly with meet and with talk uh and of course, through Tony very early on in my mind of career, I met kind of um you know a whole new kind of <laughs> a whole new slice of London life, you know because Tony, as I'm sure you know, he'd been inside you know and um he knew everybody. He knew everybody in London. I mean, you know, uh, a trip up east, up east end with Tony in those days was was an experience, you know, and, um, and, you know, often involved kind of a lot of recuperation afterwards. You know, it was quite heavy duty. But I'm I, it was incredibly entertaining to me. I mean, I was a complete voyeur, you know. I mean, you can imagine, so ex-art student. Do you know what I mean it's um so I basically kept my trap shut and just you know and just enjoyed it because it was very amusing a lot of those guys you know uh and a lot of the women you know you you kind of you were never in any doubt as to as to where they were at, but of course they could be extremely entertaining you know? very bright some of them um, some of them not so bright some of them not so nice you know but it was a it was a it was an entertaining time so that kind of quite early on um uh i got you know i just kind of found myself in you know um uh in the company of people who um you know who gave me another kind of you know gave me another sort of in to that world uh, but of course mind was very kind of um uh kind of light-hearted, you know, I mean it, it, was, it didn't go too far down the, dark, uh, down the dark alleys So, Christina says that.
0: Uh, Christina now, is it? So, Christina she says she wants you to look out for this Omar geezer Oh, come on, where's laughing boy in his treasure chest? in for some kip. Here he comes. <laughs> All right, Charlie. They might empty tins. Don't dent them. <sighs> Your poor little woman. <sighs> now, what's this hotel? The Machos? Machos? No, no. Now you take me Hornsey Road, please. Hornsey Road? Leave it out. No, come on, we'll take you home, Charlie. All right, he's got something naughty on what you got in there? A case of illegally imported cypress <laughs> ferry? No, no, it's nothing like that. It's just my gun. I am sorry, Terry, but know you take me home zero, please? It's very important.
1: Did
2: you see certain things that wouldn't have been suitable for that? Um, well, I heard things, obviously, yeah. I mean, stories. I mean, there's nothing that um, uh, your average villain likes more than telling tales, you know, uh, telling stories about daring t- tales of Daring and Do and, and, I mean, they all, and of course, they all tend to harbour incredible grudges, you know, <laughs> and, uh, um, but the, but also there's a lot of humour. Oh yeah, some of the stories obviously were you know would have been um, too too kind of uh, too dark really for Minder. But I think what Minder did do was that uh, became as it went on it became more comedic. I think. I mean Neil Griffiths' scripts for the first series were quite dark in a way. Um, I mean Arthur early on was was uh, he was like a lot of those guys can be. Uh, it's always they're always in it for themselves, you know. So his exploitation of, of Terry was was kind of very very quickly became. Because of the casting of George Cole, I think, who was brilliant, you know. But I mean, George. There is a, George has a kind of he brings a benign quality to the part, which undercuts the kind of basic, you know. I mean, uh, the yeah, he's, After that, he really behaves appallingly. you know. And as those guys tend to do, they're always on the lookout they might be very friendly, very amiable. If they see a way of making money out of you, they're going to rip you off, you know, um, if they can do it without a a qualm. Um, uh, And that's something that I saw quite a lot of and learnt about. Um, It's a mindset that that, um, can be quite kind of surprising when you come across it. But, um, you know, I think that uh, George brought you know this kind of this quirky benign quality to the part which i think had they cast somebody heavier i wonder whether it would whether it would have been as successful you know mm. i mean it might have turned people off a bit actually if um if it had been a you know i mean i i very early on i mean i think when i wrote i can't quite remember this i've got a feeling that when i wrote my first one. I don't think... When I first met Linda Reagan, I don't think George Cole had been cast, actually. I think they were still looking for, you know, someone. And at one point, somebody said to me, they're talking to Lee Montague. Mm -hmm. Now, does that name mean anything to you? Yeah, he was actually in one of the episodes. I think he might, I think he probably was. Now he he was you know a good actor but you know there was something quite kind of heavy about him yeah. yeah. and I think that would have been a very different um, a very different series you know
1: yeah because uh, in his, his episode he actually plays um, some sort of foreign diplomat that seems to rather shady things in the
2: yeah middle or far east or something so yeah. That was well he was played. good. He, he, yeah. he was a good actor, but I mean, I think the, the, the choice of George Cole was very smart, you know, worked out well. Um Yeah, so it was a kind of, it was uh, it was a big learning curve for me in more ways than one, really, because it was my first job in t- TV. So I had to learn, you know, I mean, in those days, there was very little help. Um, uh, and I, so, that you know, two learning curves for me. A was learning how to do the job, on the job, as I did it, which was difficult. And B, there was the world that, um, you know, various worlds that I found myself, you know, <clears throat> um. Observing and witnessing, and you know, um, uh, so for me it was just kind of completely fascinating. Um, the problem for me was that um, when I got the first, when Linda Agra commissioned me to write my my first episode, I couldn't. My, I didn't have the kind of craft skills. You know, I could write if. Uh, If you said to me, I could write the characters, I could, you know, if you said to me, write a scene, Terry and Arthur go to a a posh restaurant, I could write endless scenes about that. Terry and Arthur argue about football. Terry and Arthur get involved in a fight in a pub. I could write that. Putting together, you know, a sequence of scenes that told a story that had a beginning, middle and an end, which is what you have to do. I mean, now, sort of 40 years later, it's so obvious, you know, to me. I mean, I've done it now, I've done it so much. But then I was completely, as a complete angel, really. And um, it took me, uh, and I just kept plugging and plugging away. I think Linda, um, I mean, I did get very close one day to um, phoning her up and saying, I can't do it, you know. But I, you know, but you have to kind of, fortunately... I was stubborn and so I kept going. And in the end, you know, I kind of through dint of you know to getting it wrong. I mean, I think often the best lessons, you know, particularly where writing is concerned, is you know, you only learn the lesson when you've got it very badly wrong. And um so in the end I kind of stuck to my guns and and um Wrote an episode that had a beginning, a middle, and an end, <laughs> and it was okay. It was done, you know. And of course, then when I when I when the penny dropped, and I thought, okay, you know, if you've got a good story, it makes the character stuff even easier because they're after something, they have a problem, you know. When it's kind of concrete and specific, then of course everything flows from that, you know. Everything flows from narrative. So, were you responsible for the actual storyline as well, or just the script itself? People always say that it's weird, you know. Um, yeah, that's that's the job—is the story, you know. Well, I mean, can I re- just rephrase
1: slightly because I can see, yeah, it comes across like, did you actually meant this for yourself, or did someone else put the point? But, but I mean we give given pointers at least on the one, for instance, the Greek Cypriot, um, mm. quite interesting to me because I live in Cyprus, by the way. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, interesting characters in that one, that type of thing. Would that be something you just came up with
2: completely, or did they say, yeah, we're looking for a Greek Cypriot theme person? No, no, I just came up with that, you know, um, and it was based on the story. Uh, somebody told me about um, uh, again, you know, uh, sitting in a pub with some blokes, you know, and somebody said that they they had a friend who uh, um, had a Greek. I can't remember if it was a Greek uh, Cypriot or Turkish Cypriot restaurant, um, and there was you know there was rivalry with another restaurant and another, and it was a family thing and um They had, I mean, the rats was was based on an anecdote I was told, you know, that they planted the rats in the deep freeze or in the kitchen or whatever, and called the health inspector, all that kind. Of, and I just thought, oh, that's quite interesting, you know. um That's something that Terry could, uh, I mean, and I think when Linda, when I met Linda, she said, give me three possible story ideas, and I one of them was the restaurant, the Cypriot restaurant. Uh another one, I can't remember what the I can't remember what the other two were. Do you know? What? I can't remember. But she liked them all and said, You no, I think she liked she liked them all, but I think she liked the restaurant one better. And um so that's the one I did, you know.
0: Those bastards who bring the bread, look what they do. Nick, they took the key to the deep freeze. I had to give it or they hit me. A geezer out front says he's a burrow elf inspector. Anything the matter? Oh my good god!
2: I think that was the first season, so, um, generally speaking, how it works is in my experience, you know, I'm talking generally now, not just about minder, is that, you know, stories are a a good story or a good starting point for a story. That's the kind of gold dust, you know. And I don't think I've ever been told, I don't think I've ever worked on a series and and said, hey, we want you to do an episode. Would you like to do an episode of Lovejoy? We want you to do one in which Lovejoy finds a, do you know what I mean? Or... Mm -hmm. Um, I, that's never happened to me because, you know, everybody's desperate for <laughs> for stories, for story ideas, and the most that happens is you say, "Well, how about the story? How about this story?" And they will say, they might say, "No, we've got one like that, or we've already done a story like that." Which, obviously, long running series that becomes more and more of a problem, you know. Um, but no, it's it's the um, I mean, Minder was kind of great because the way it worked was um, Lillard would phone up and say, you know, we have been recommissioned to another series. Would you like to do one? And you'd say yes. Uh, I mean, I think a couple of years I did three. Uh, I'm not sure quite sure it panned out, but I certainly did more than one in some of the seasons. And then you'd come up with, so she'd say, then you'd go back to her with a with story idea. Or, and she'd say yes or no. I don't don't rem- ever remember saying no. And then you'd write it. So there was no, you know, you maybe have lunch and talk about it a bit, but that was it. you go home and write it. Nowadays, of course, and, and I think for quite a long time now, you know, there are more and more uh, executives involved in these things, you know, there are... Um, uh independent production companies and broadcasts, suddenly you're, you know, you've got a million people giving you notes and they want a detailed storyline before you write the script. You know, so you're working on the story um uh in great detail before you write the script, which is, you know, and sometimes for very little money, but that's the hard, that's the hard part of the job, you know, once you've got uh a strong story which works. Um, then writing the script is kind of um, uh, is relatively easy, and in fact, often, you know, generally speaking, as you write the script, it will get better. The story that you have outlined and worked out, which is kind of like your safety net, you know. You start writing the script, and you say, "Okay, you know, if I never have another idea in the next month, I've got." This story that works but you know inevitably as you go along and you start writing the scenes properly and you start writing dialogue the story takes on a life and then you can make it better you know but it's very kind of um it's a very controlled business now lots of people kind of are on your or on your case you know and uh, and sometimes i know you know you write treatments story break, you know, you write scene breakdowns almost and then have to rewrite them. So, you know, sometimes I haven't had to do this, thank God, but I know some writers, it, try, it drives you mad, you know, because by the time you write the script, you feel like you've already, do you know what I mean? It's already kind of like you've beaten it to death. So you death take... by notes. Yeah. When you did mine, do you think that's
1: one of the reasons why it worked, because you have the natural writing process that I'm guessing wasn't messed around with too much before it went
2: into film. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. It was Um, character-based it was about a relationship between these two guys and their relationship with the the wider world and um, the stories had that kind of, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think I mean, Verity Lambert, who was, you know, the, the boss of Houston Films at the time, and all the time, she was great. All the time I worked on mine, she, I had one note from Verity, and it was a line of dialogue that she thought was rather, rather unpleasant. Um, and it was a line of dialogue, weirdly, that I nicked off, um, off an American film, which had amused me. But it, uh, it, so I just thought it's interesting that the, the only note I ever got from Verity, who was always very, you know, supportive and, and encouraging, but no, it was very little interference at all. You know, it was great. And I mean, looking back on it, actually, the more I think about it, the more bizarre it is in terms of how the business has changed, where, you know, um, I think the internet and email has changed it a lot as well. I mean, I've worked, I worked on a show um, where uh, I would get notes. I had, I think I met the producer once for about five minutes, never met the director. Uh, The only person I met was a script editor who was very young, very inexperienced, pleasant guy, you know, doing an impossible job. Uh, And he would send me these notes that were from the independent production company, three people at the independent production company, God knows how many people at the broadcaster, which I think was ITV in this case. And he had to collate all these notes into one document uh, and give them to me, you know. And of course, you don't know who's it's in a meeting, in an actual meeting, you know who's saying one thing, and who's saying another thing. So you know that the producer's saying this thing, the executive producer saying another thing, you know. When it's in, in a document, you have no idea who's saying what. And also they can be completely contradictory. You know, I mean I've had notes which are on page three, I mean single space, pages and pages and notes, single space. Page three, we, we, we want um, more scenes between so-and-so and so-and-so because we think this is kind of warm and it's redeeming, blah, blah, blah. Page five, we want less scenes between so-and-so and so-and-so uh, because it's, you know, it's holding up the main story. And I'd say to the poor script editor who had written this document, obviously under huge pressure, probably at sort of midnight, you know, um, with all his emails streaming in from his execs for him to wrangle, and I said, okay, which is it? What do you want, more or less? And he would sort of go red, you know. I mean, it's Im- impossible, you know. I mean, really, really miserable uh, to write on, to write in that way, to have to write in that way. Um, but, I mean, it's not, you know, that's, that's a fairly extreme example. That, that's kind of like the way I think that's, you know, you can imagine the minder culture uh, compared to that was kind of like, it was blissful. you yeah. know. Yeah. And how,
1: when you had written the script and it was accepted, which was obviously virtually instantaneous by the sound of it, with the actual filming, how much did your script change during the episodes? Did the ad live a lot? Uh,
2: very, very little actually. Very little. Um, I don't. I. It, I mean, the thing is, there might there might be the odd. I mean, one of the problems with writing, uh, I think there's a there's a difference between there's comedy and there's humour. You know, they're two different, slightly different things. I think, and one of the problems with writing drama that has humour in it is that some people, some directors, some actors, they kind of think, oh, hey, it's a comedy. Let's make it funnier. If I do this, it's going to be even funnier, you know. Uh, and actually what they do is they completely destroy the humour because it's not a comedy in that sense. It's character-based. There's a story. The humour comes out of the clash of the characters, you know. And, um, and it's not gags, you know. Um, so now and then, I mean, Dennis Waterman and George Cole were very professional in that respect. Occasional visiting uh, actors would feel obliged to, but I mean, I can't really remember any. No, it was it was terrific like that. I mean, you know, obviously, what you hope is to write them really good stuff that they don't want to change, you know, because it works, and they read it and it work and it works between the two of them or between whoever it is. So. You know, and also the schedules are pretty punishing, you know. I mean, uh everybody's bashing through the scenes, you know. Um there isn't a lot of time for sort of, you know. Um uh hey, you know, can I just try something? Can we just try this scene another way? You know, no, there isn't time, you know. It's on to the next one. You know, yeah. So in that sense, no, that wasn't. It wasn't. wasn't a problem like that. When you first met
1: Linda and she gave you the go ahead, what was yeah. your initial deadline for the first episode? And from then on, oh god, I got can't
2: remember. I weighed, uh, I missed it. Um, I mean, I had, I had a real stroke of luck, um, because I missed the, um, I missed my deadline. And they commissioned um, and they had enough episodes for the first season without mine. Because obviously they'd over-commissioned them, probably sort of way I was still f- flailing away at home trying to finish this thing. And they thought, OK, he's having trouble, commission another one. And I think what happened is, I think it might have been a Willis Hall script. I'm not sure. And it was about horse racing. And they were going to shoot it. I mean, you might know more about this than me. Um, but this is just my my recollection. Uh They were going to shoot it at Brighton, Brighton Racecourse. Yeah. And there was a problem Um the race course read the script or something and decided, no, we don't want to be associated with this. You know, And so suddenly they were short of, it was very short, they were short of an episode for the first season. Uh, And by this time I delivered my script. I finally managed to get it together to write a script that worked, The, the restaurant one, the Cypriot restaurant one.
0: Arthur. Terry. <laughs> you know, one day, just once, I'd like to get my wages without having to ask for them. Sorry, Terry. Completely slipped my mind. There you go. Half a tonne. Fifty? Very tight-fisted, at Christina. Anyway, that's more than you get normally in a place like that, including tips. Same again. Why not, Dave? Terry's getting them in, he's just being paid. Oh, friendly yours, aren't they? Oh, thank God you're here. Christina, you're just in time, Churchill. Terry's getting them in. Drink for the lady. Campari soda, no ice. No, thank you. Are you. Sure? It's Charlie. I know. He wants a lift to the airport. I'm thinking of charging that geezer petrol money. <laughs> he is not at his hotel. His luggage is gone. He's checked out. Well, maybe he decided he wanted to have a look at Big Ben. Or oh, Wimbledon dog track. He promised me he would not leave the hotel. He knows the time of the flights and everything. You think he's up to the ritual murder, Lark, again? Well, at least he ain't told up. Uh, got a gun. Well, that is the other thing. Yeah. I hid the gun at the restaurant. Now it's gone the only other person who knew where it was was Johnny. No, he's probably taking it to show it in front of his mates. Are you sure you don't want a drink? No, thank you. When Charlie hijacked us, he was all for going up the Hornsey Road. Well, We could go up there and have a look, Christine, if you like, but it's a very long road. The Hornsey Road, that's where Omar's place is. Just a thought. Yeah, and Charlie did say that the geezer who gave him the nod knew all about his brother being shot. Right. So Johnny set Omar up for topping Charlie's brother. Dead handy for Johnny. No more Omar, no more our shares in restaurants. No, that's incredible. It's the way our DVS minds work, I'm afraid.
2: And so that filled the slot. I had a phone call saying, um, from Linda saying, hey, hey, uh, we're going to make your episode, you know, which was fantastic. And I think the Willis Hall episode, and again, you probably know as much about this as I do, the Willis Hall episode, I think, was rejigged to be dog racing, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, And maybe it was in season two, I think. But, you know, A had that... uh, if Brighton Force or where it was, hadn't caused that problem, and if season two hadn't been, if it hadn't been greenlit to go to another season, I would have missed the boat. But as it was, that was, you know, that was a terrific, terrific piece of luck, you know. And the lesson I learnt from that was, you know, just no matter what the problems, you just have to, you know, finish, get it done, you know, be productive. So that was yeah that was a stroke of luck, you know. And then of course, and I think that the, as again, uh, I may I may not I may this may not be quite right, but I think that Thames were very um, unsure about recommissioning, uh, you know, about going for another series. And I think Verity crossed the road. Because course, you know, Houston Films were on Euston Road, and they were opposite what was then Thames, you know. I think she crossed the road and <coughs> gave them a tongue lashing, you know, and said, you've got to give us another go on this. It, it's going to work, you know. And they it's, did. Was this for Series two? you know, Series 3? Yeah. Well, Series 1, I think. I mean, it's a year since I've looked at them, you know. But I think that some... Because it had... um Dennis in it, you know, clearly who was a star from the Sweeney. And I think some of the writers thought it was a sort of Sweeney-esque kind of thing. So it was a bit kind of, um, some of the episodes didn't quite get the relationship right, you know, between the two of them. And I also think uh, another thing that that is difficult to recall now, because drama, TV drama, drama has changed so much. It was quite unusual in its mix of, of humour and, and drama. Mm-hmm. And I can remember a friend of mine saying to me, uh, and people were quite puzzled by it initially. I can remember a friend of mine saying, is it supposed to be funny? I mean, people weren't used to watching filmed one-hour drama, you know, with Dennis Waterman in it and Crooks and whatever, but with this kind of undertow of, of humour in the relationship, in the situations, in Arthur's endless aspirations and disappointments, you know. Uh, and pe- I mean, I think I think it's very interesting because I think that you do something that is, that is new in terms of its attitude, and it's kind of like the audience have to learn to, under, to have to get into it. They have to slightly adjust their sort of, you know, mindset to understand what it's trying to do. So I think it was the first season. I think they were, I mean, again, this is just my reading of it. Uh, I think they were, um, uh, Thames were unsure because the audience were unsure. And also because I think the one or two of the episodes in the first season didn't quite hit the mark, you know. Um, But come the second season, uh, I think it kind of, and this, I think, this often happens in TV, actually. I think first series can be a bit kind of patchy. Uh, and then they get into their stride and, and it, it, the writers become more confident and, you know, they see it working. They see what works, what doesn't work. And, you know, and I think that happened in season two. And it, it very quickly became, you know, I mean, it was massive success um, quite soon, I think. It became more and more humorous as time went on, and it became well it, and it became more and more humorous, yeah, and I think one of the problems was, I mean, I don't really want to kind of be negative about it, but and maybe you know maybe I, I'm as responsible as anybody, but it did get it did get more comedic, yeah, uh, definitely. And, of course, George Cole was so good after they became, you know, like this kind of national trade household name. Uh, and there's a tendency uh, for writers to write for George. And, for, I mean, you know, the problem was, in the end, it could, easy, it could too easily become a vehicle for George with, with Dennis Waterman as his straight man, you know which was, and I always tried and not necessarily succeeded, but I was always trying to give Dennis good stuff to do. Um, uh, I mean, drama as opposed to comedy, because he's a good actor. You know, he's a very good actor. Um, but it did get a bit, you know, I, I, I completely agree. Um, and when uh, Dennis, I can't remember, I think I did... A dozen I'm not sure uh, when and I did they did a short series of six which were denison's last I did one of those and, and then I didn't work on it anymore either um, I had other things to do and I just thought you know that's it really that should be it but so I never really kind of um, uh, checked out the what it was like after. After Dennis left. So, did they Um, want want you to do that? And and you said no. Sorry, did they want me to do more? Yeah. I can't remember, to be quite honest. I think so. I think I was asked. Yeah. But I was doing, I was doing, I was trying to get my own thing going at the time and I was doing other stuff, you know. And uh, I really can't remember. I think so. But also, there were changes like Verity Lambert. I went to EMI from Houston Films. There were lots of changes in personnel at Houston Films. The culture changed slightly. Um, I can't, you know, to be actually honest, I can't really remember. But I was, and I kind of think, you know, I mean, I've been working on it for, I suppose, eight, nine, ten years, you know, and I think that's... And admittedly, I was always doing other things all the time, you know, but and it had been very it had been very good to me. But um I don't I can remember definitely feeling uh that I wanted to move on and I didn't now that Dennis wasn't part of it, I didn't really want to um carry on with it. I think Tony Hall, I think Tony wrote a few more after that. I'm not sure, I think so. Um and he went on to things like London's burning and stuff like that. Anyway.
1: Listen, I've got some money. Oh, yeah.
0: Where'd you get that? Cream it out of Christina's restaurant. I'm talking in hundreds. All right, son. Here you are. Drive yourself out of trouble. One Ford Transit, almost MOT. Oh, you have to fork out for the content, so There's no time to unload them valuable foodstuffs 500 bargain of a week good news about your tins mario somebody stole them we only flogged them didn't we i'm amazed i'm telling you that <laughs> who is this person an idiot well his judgment could be said to be impaired a little bit and guess what we also sold a van oh but it's wonderful how much 150 150 i could have got 400 yeah uh, this is Robbie. You robbed me. Leave it out, Mario. Quick sale, cash in the hand. 150. I've got to be off. Oi, oi. Excuse me. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Here we are. I'm going to see how Christina's getting on. Now, remember, you're down a dragon tonight. It's your favorite band. You the one that gets them all murdering each other. Cheers, Mario. And cheers to you, Arthur Bloody Daly. I'm telling you that. Oh, I saw all right, Mario. I'll bleed and tell him. Oi, Arthur. What's this? Oi! Come here! Arthur!
1: My sincere thanks to Andrew Payne and his agent, Lydia Drake, for taking the time to organise the interview, as well as all the time Andrew spent talking to me. As he was so generous with his time, we have a part two coming up next time. I kept him talking as long as possible, as he was such engaging company, and it was a true privilege to hear all about the Minder writing process. I also think this was something of an exclusive, because I don't know of any other interviews where Andrew, or indeed most of the people that we speak to here, ever really went into Minder information that much, it was something they'd probably not really been asked about. Thanks to all those who've emailed in, it's always a pleasure to receive your messages. I try and respond to every message, and have had some good conversations with some of you fellow Minder obsessives, not least Robin Finney. Hello Robin. I thought it worth mentioning one ongoing conversation with listener and also a writer, Lee Priest, seeing as we mentioned Leon Griffiths in more depth during this episode. Without Leon, of course, there would not have been a minder, so he is the most important part to the minder story, regardless of everything that followed his initial plan. As Lee mentioned to me, there really is not a great deal of material about Leon, which is a shame. It would be nice to put some sort of tribute together, but it seems he was not fully recognised during his lifetime, and it is now 30 years since his passing. I will just read out a snippet from Lee's email, as it's a very good point. He says... Leon's last Minder script was from Series 6, of course, the episode Waiting for Goddard. Whilst I would always watch any Terry and Arthur episodes that followed, in some ways this final Series 6 episode was a better way to end the series. Leon reinstated the Arthur-Terry friction, the can't live, survive with you, can't live, survive without you. Some great life observations in this episode too. One very geeky observation here, and I think it may have been coincidental, The very last line's where Terry is walking off. He's really fuming at Arthur, and finally had enough. Arthur chases after Terry, saying half of a check is his, and shouts, Terry! Terry looks over his shoulder, looking distant, to say the least. And it's almost an identical pose to the opening credits, where Terry is looking over his shoulder as the Minder logo appears. Here, the end credits then go up. Wow, what a cliffhanger. I also think in this episode, Leon is saying, this is the Terry-Arthur relationship. Spot on, Lee, and thanks for your messages and your suggestion of putting together some kind of crowdfunding for a plaque or a statue of Leon Griffiths. It's worth thinking about that episode in particular, Waiting for Goddard, being quite directly the last of Terry as Arthur is quite unpleasant towards him, presumably under the age-old belief that he can get away with it, but it wasn't to be. I also recall that episode has a great piece of rhyming slang, Penny Stamp, Tramp. Albert Goddard, that is. As with most of the episodes, the title was based on a classic phrase or existing title, in this case, Waiting for Godo." I don't think this was by accident either, as the phrase is used to describe a situation where someone is waiting for something to happen, but it probably never will. Godo never arrives. Thank you to everyone for writing in. If you want to write to the show, the email is winchesterclub at minderpodcast.co.uk.